The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. You know, today, when we're talking about this, ultimately what we're looking at it as we look at the Nicene Creed. There's a lot to this passage, I mean, this, this creed, and we're not going to take on all of it. We're not. We're going to take on a very a small portion building off of last week. Um, and so, <coughs> if, you'll, if you'll just bear with me on this, the first part is kind of almost a reiteration of, what la- of, of the beginning of the Apostles' Creed. Beyond one thing, we talked about it. If you all look at that, he says, go ahead and put it on there. Um, on point number one, go ahead and go all the way there. He says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And so that was important. There was an addition there. There is no specific reason given as we look back throughout the history and the records there of why they wrote of all things visible and visible except the fact of what is about to come, what they're going to talk about, okay? And so it's important for to see that. Now, I'm not going to go back through necessarily through John 1 today, but I want us to look back at Genesis chapter 1. If you, will, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, as we read it, I know that we're, it's a big chunk, um, and I don't know how, how far I'll go, but what, what do we have here? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was out without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Some point in time, I will. I want. I want to walk through the book of Genesis, especially Genesis chapter one. Um, I I heard a man do a video. I was re- listening to a video this week of how he, de- he he his statement is: you don't have to believe in a young earth to be to be a Christian or to believe the Bible. In fact, he said it other way around. He excuses young earth creationists, and he is a decently well known guy. And so I actually want to talk about, uh, at some point in time, I'm going to take this on and I want to show you in the language why, he, why what he just said was a joke. Because there's something that is very specific here that was said. An old earth creationist would say, science disproves the Bible on this note. That's a bad place to begin if, you say, if, if, if you're saying Genesis 1 is wrong, you're probably going to, or it doesn't mean what it says. Well, we'll talk about that at some point in time. Um, uh, it's just one of those aspects of understanding if the foundation if the foundation is doubtful then or if you doubt the foundation that you it really creates doubt in other places and uh, there's very there's a reason why it said this and so the light there was night and there was there was day and there was night and it was the first day okay very important it said the first day not a not a day or a time or, or something that says the first day and God said, second, verse 6, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the water, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that, they were, that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, or the heavens. And there was an evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let dry, ground, uh, dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees, and all the like. Third day. It just it said the third day. Then goes on the verses 14 uh, through 18. We see all the lights in the skies and the expanse of them. That's the sun and the moon and all those are. That was the fourth day. The, the verses 20 through 23. He talks about God let the let, the, let he let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures. So he created the fish, 
and the birds. Okay, birds of the air, the fish of the sea. And that was the fifth day. On the sixth day, by the way, God did not create over seven days. He created in six days. One of the things. Seventh day, we find that he rested. And it was a pattern that was created. Um, well, that's a whole, like I said, Genesis 1 is actually a pattern of multiple things that we could talk about. And um, that's why people struggle with this being anything literal about it. Because there's a pattern that's here along with that. But there's a lot of other aspects. So on the sixth day, he brought forth all the living creatures on the ground. All the, so he said, all the living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, beasts of the earth and according to their kind. He made them. Then he said, let us make man in our image. And made also on the same day he made man. And after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish in the sea. And it says, he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then he gave, he blessed them, told them to be fruitful and multiple, and have dominion over all these creatures in the earth. I want us to see that there is a point that God made all things, both visible and invisible. And why, what, when, with this passage, and the reason why we say both visible and invisible is when you see the creation account being given. There are things that were not that God spoke into existence. And that is a key thing. There are some things that we don't have full, um, there's not full understanding of what, where this came, but up until this point, God existed, and God makes these things. So in verse 1 we said, the earth was, was without form and void. Means what will happen? There was no form, or and it was void of all form. So he creates this thing, and so... Um, and so when we look at this aspect of this creation, in six days he creates all these things. On the seventh day we find he rests. And we find that Sabbath rest coming in um, in chapter 2. And so as we move forward, and we'll talk about the Sabbath rest coming up in, eventually. I want us to look at this aspect as, of all things visible and invisible. There, are there things, um, there are things that were not that came? There's questions that people will ask. Well, what about angels? What about what about angels? What about uh, well, there were angels, and then we look at Satan and teaching on on Satan and a third of the angels falling. They fell to where? They fell to the earth, is what we found. There, Satan he was cast out and cast down. Once again, more doctrinal teaching. That's what I'm, I'm trying to get at. That's here, but ultimately, when we look at things visible and invisible, he's created all things, not. Um, and, and from this this aspect comes this question or these teachings that came up, and they they were, and we'll find that they were they were controversies. Let's just call them controversies first. We'll get to that. We're going to call two out two controversies today. And in the process of this, it it it's it starts with here this aspect because. People struggle, a lot of people struggle with this aspect. What didn't God create is really what you have to come down to. What didn't He create And so, if, in this aspect? So I'm going to move into number two for a reason, because this is what's going to happen. This is where some of the controversies came out of. And this is an answer to them. And number two, it says, I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to do the broken down. I gave you all some blanks this week. <laughs> So, it says, And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men in our salvation, and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit, of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. There's a reason why I stopped here, because this is as far as I could get doctrinally in teaching today. First off, we're going to talk about A, is Jesus is begotten of the Father. This is where some of the teaching and struggles came from. Jesus is begotten of the Father. I gave you in your notes 
every definition that I have, so you, you don't turn around and go, well, what did he mean by that again? Every Greek word that I have so that we understand where this stuff comes from. The word begotten, according to Noah Webster, and this is where some of the issues come up, means procreated or generated. According to Noah Webster, Noah Webster in 1828 used the definition. Where did he, where do these definitions come from? Well, we understand that some of it is derived from very, uh, and he made a, what did he, why did he make a, a, a why did he make a dictionary? It was ultimately to honor God, because God is a God of all things. He wants to honor Him with the words, especially the American dictionary. And He wants to honor Him. Well, the word begotten for them in most, in most cases means this is my, if I said, and let's look at John 3, 16-21. I look at Eli, and he was, if I, he was my only son, and I said, he's my only begotten son. What we think of is he's the only son that I created. And this is where the controversy comes up, or the, the controversies and struggles, because according to the language that they had, when they create the, and we'll see in the New King James, look at the difference in the two, the two, transla the two translations that we're using. And there's, it's not that they're borrowing from other, doc, other Bibles. I want you to understand they're using what they had at the time. So look at this. In the uh, English Standard Version, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. When I look at this and I underlined it for you on verse 16, he says that he gave his only son. Now, what happens is most most translators, when you look back at what they had language-wise, whether the Geneva Bible or the King James, it says that he gave his only begotten son. Okay, so we have to look at language, and this is what this is why I gave you the Greek language. I'm using two dictionaries, Greek dictionaries. One of them is. Um, one of them is the Thayer's, and is the word for begotten that we use in the English language here is a word monogenes, monogenes, and it's going to be we give you both. It means single of its kind, or only. In Mounts's Greek dictionary, he says one and only, unique. Nowhere does this word translate out procreated. The only way it would translate out to be procreated would be when I'm describing my children. Okay? But that is not what is being done here. The problem with this is it creates... When men look at... When we look at Scripture through the eyes of our culture and our understanding around us... We are not, we are what's called isogeting. We're reading into the scripture. Okay? When the, we are taking scripture and taking it out and applying it to the world, it's called exegete. Okay? We are not trying, we're taking out of it and, and applying it. We're doing it, the, the, one of them imposes our, our pretenses upon it. The other imposes God's pretenses upon the world. And so when we look at this, what happens is there comes up a controversy. So B here is called, I wrote, Jesus and the Arian Controversy. Arian. Jesus and the Arian Controversy. Now when I talk about Arianism here, we're not talking about the Ku Klux Klan or white power or the Arian Brotherhood. That's with a Y. 
Okay, this is an actual person. And I was sitting there, and I even I was remiss. A R I A N. It's Arian with an I instead of a Y. Okay. And so even last night I was joking about something. I don't even know what I was doing. But this man's name is Arius, not guys, not Arminius. The other guy's name is Arminius. That's who St. Nicholas punched. Okay, anyways, that's the whole new thing. Not Arius. Two different times. All right. I don't know why my head skipped it. But yes, that's my favorite thing to talk about. My favorite story of St. Nicholas is when we punched Arminius out in the, in the council for his heresy. And he was detained. He was taken, but the Lord restored him. Anyways, what we're talking about here is about specific teachings attributed to Arius who, who lived around 256 to 336 AD in that time period. So we're talking about 3rd century going into 4th century, who was a Christian bishop in Alexandria of Egypt. The core of his teaching is this, it is a non-Trinitarian teaching, meaning that believing that Jesus was begotten by the Father at a specific point in time. Therefore, although being God, he was a creature distinct from God and subordinate to God. This was Arius' teaching, that, that Christ or Jesus was created, the Son was created at a point in time, distinct from God and subordinate to God. That's what a non-Trinitarian teaching. Non-Trinitarianism rejects the mainstream Christian doctrine of the Trinity. The teaching that God is three distinct, distinct hypotheses, uh, which are, I'll talk about that in a moment, or persons who are co-eternal, co-equal, and indivisibly united in one being or essence. So what happened is the Arian concept of Christ is based on the belief that the Son of God did not always exist, but was begotten within time by God the Father. Well, before I go on to say what Arian, Arius actually said, one of the things to take very close look at is those who hold to such a teaching. There's a group called the Way. There's a group uh, called the Unitarian Universalists that holds a, a non-Trinitarian teaching. But we also know Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. Um, one is Pentecostals. They don't hold to the teaching that there's a Trinity, uh, or they hold to this form, and several others. There's, there's, there's mixed in there between some that would be almost would consider what's like mainstream Christianity to those who are cults and they hold to this teaching now are there a lot of people that hold to this no but I want you to understand what this teaching is saying is what Arius said and this is what he takes from the scripture Arius says stated and understand that the King James Bible is not here yet okay notice that I want to make clear that the authorized King James Version did not come around until 15, uh, 1611, not 300 AD. But I want you to understand that these teachings were taught. So when teachings come up again, we have a distinct, and this wasn't just a couple of guys in a home church decided to make this rule. We're talking about a council here, uh, the Council of Nicaea. But he said, if the Father begat the Son, then he who was begotten had a beginning in existence. And from this it follows that there was a time when the Son was not. Okay, so we take a scripture and we impose something from the outside, not from within. Because what we find here, and I'm going to read some scripture in just a second like we did last week, was scripture says that he was with God in the beginning. Scripture tells us that that all things were created by him. The scripture tells us that before the foundations of the earth were laid, which means before Genesis 1 is recorded or has a beginning, he was. And so he said that he who was begotten had a beginning. And so we look at this. Now this was in stark contrast to the primary Trinitarian view um, of Homoseanism. And, and Athanasius of Alexandria, same location, opposed him at the first Nicene Council in 325 A.D. So 325 A.D., 
There's a calling of the calling of all the bishops, all the all the all the bishops, all the churches around, not just a little area. We're talking about the council and the deacons, the, the deacons and the elders and the bishops, all those guys come together to talk about things and then things are presented. And at that point in time it was deemed what he was teaching was deemed heresy, and this is the reason why. There's a word that I, I talked about just a second ago. Uh, I can't even say the word half the time, but uh, when we look at homoseanism, we have it there. It means same in being and same in essence. If Jesus is not God, he, he means he's another God. And then what we find in Scripture is, what do we find in Scripture? He says, there, if Jesus is not God, and he's created at a different point, he is what? He's not one in essence with God. He's another God. This is what Mormonism teaches, doesn't it? That, that Father, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father is one of many gods, and he, with Mother created Jesus. And we find that there's teachings that Jesus and Michael the archangels are brothers. Uh, we find teachings that Jesus and Satan are brothers. And these are things that come outside. But it's because they come from a point of saying that Jesus is not the same in being or same in essence. But he was created. And that's a dangerous slope because that's not what scripture tells us in any way. When we look at the, the core, and it says, In one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of, this is intentional, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Up to this point, the central teaching of the church had been this very teaching. Arius is coming in saying, Hey, I believe this now. This is what I'm seeing. And then they, because of the, the controversy that was surrounding all this, they gathered together and they come together with a creed to say what the church believes and what we stand upon. When we look at John chapter 17, there's a very important part when we talk about about the oneness of God, of Christ, and the oneness of the Father. The reason why I use this aspect of if Jesus is created, He's a separate God. That means He automatically ends up being what? He's automatically subordinate. He's a lesser God. But that's not what He is. He not only has authority... He's been not only been given authority, he has authority. He's with God in the beginning, what we find. But John 17, let's read this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's saying, glorify me now with the same glory that I've had with you before the world's existed. He says, I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and have come to know in the truth, know in truth, that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you get, have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
While I was with them, I kept them in your name, you have, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they have, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know, you, know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. That's a whole lot of words to come down the pipe. It's come back to this place of starting at understanding that Jesus said, I glorified you on earth and I accomplished the work that you had. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the creation of the earth. Then he comes with them. When he talks about that they are that they may be like us it's not that they might be in you and i in you and all those things as i'm in you and that he's not saying that they may become gods and this is another aspect that that is misled by the mormons um, they believe that the purpose of salvation their ultimate salvation is that they will be gods reigning on their own planet now that's that's where they're at and so that's not what he's talking about he's saying so that the world may believe that you sent me Everything comes back to the fact that they come to know God, know His Son, and that He is from the Father, and that they are one. When we look at John 16, he even goes on to talk. We saw, I just abbreviated what we looked at last week. And he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority. But whoever he hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Everything Christ has belongs to the Father. And he's one with the Father in the fact that they, it's the same. And it is one and the same. When we look at this, not only is Jesus begotten of the Father. I mean, when we talk about his begottenness is not being born. It's, it's about his oneness with the Father. He's the only one. He's the only son. He's the only one in that one. It's that special relationship. And his purpose is what we'll see is that what? That he would reconcile men to God. The Aryan, the Aryan controversy simply is this. is when someone says that at some point in time, Christ was created, he was created later, and he is subordinate to the Father. You will not find anywhere in Scripture that Christ was created and subordinate to the Father. Everywhere you'll see is that we are one, He is one with the Father. What His is mine and what's mine is His. Then He talks about the Holy Spirit. And every time He talks about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. And what does the Spirit do? He doesn't testify of His own truth. He doesn't do of His own fruition. What does He do? He speaks what the Father and the Son have told Him. Where they in all things, the truth that he had, they have, he 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 speaks and he guides us in truth. But there was a second controversy that popped up a little bit longer, and this is the other blank. It's called the Nestorian, like nest, like a bird nest, nest, Orion, O R I A N. I, I mean, if we got a bigger TV, you'd probably be able to see it over there. Just saying. 
I gotta at least plug that once a month. Um, in fact, if it was big enough, you could probably look at the screen where we're recording right now and see it there. So I'm just saying. Anyways, just just a hint. You know. Jesus and the Nestorian controversy. Now, this Nestorius has a different kind of. It's it's Nestorius for a different reason. Kind of rhyme for me. That's how I remember him. Nestorius was what was around between 386 to 450 AD. So we're looking at fourth and fifth century. And he was a patriarch of Constantinople. And his primary teaching is is something that that we'll talk about portion of and now this is something we're going to reach into because we'll talk about it a little bit next week the next time we gather his primary teaching controversy was over his rejection of the title theotokos for the mother of god mary now what theotokos means is, is literally this mother of god well he rejects it much like if you look at uh, Luther or any other Luther had Luther struggled with the book of James because what when we look at Martin Luther what did he say what is his principle a couple weeks back if you go two weeks back Martin Luther's main thing he says we are saved by grace through faith this is not of our own works right and what does James turn around and tell us faith without works is dead so he he had to wrestle. He actually thought it shouldn't be a part of canon, of Scripture. He wrestled. So he had to wrestle with it. He came to a conclusion based upon what it was saying when he finally got it translated and we worked through the process that it was part of canon. And it was hard for him. I mean, it is. When, you, when you're opposing something so greatly that it's not saved by works, but you're saved by grace through faith, and then something comes up and it says, I'll show you my faith by what I do. That's not meaning the same thing. My, my faith is made based upon work. So when Nestorius, uh, Nestorius comes along, his primary teaching was over the title Theotokos, the mother of God, being about Mary. So now we're not going to talk about Mariology. Now I will talk about. That's what I want to talk about in the, in the next time a little bit of understanding where Mariology came from in the study of Mary. Okay. I'm going to give you the positive and negative attributes of it. There are some positive things we need to take from it and glean. And then there's some things that were created not too long ago by the Roman Catholic Church. And Mariology has not been there for that long. It has not been part of their teaching for that long. Just like the infallibility of the Pope hasn't been around for that long. So, we'll look at some of these things. But Nestorianism is a rejection or opposition to the hypostatic union which actually is this is where you'll have a word there it's called hypostasis it's a hypostatic union really is what it is i know it's fancy words but that's why i gave you my fancy words in my, i sat here everything behind me i give you all these fancy no, no, words in the notes and the reason why it means sediment the foundation the substance or subsistence is a technical term in christian theology employed in mainstream Christ, christology to describe the human of Christ, the union of Christ's humanity and divinity and one hypostasis or individual existence. The most basic explanation, okay, for this hypostatic or hypostatic union is Jesus Christ being both God and man. He is both perfectly divine and perfectly human. And what, before we read on, this is what came about. Look at, let's look at what it says. The Athanasian Creed, which is the other creed that I told you is very long. It said, the Athanasian Creed recognized this doctrine and affirmed its importance, stating that He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and He is human from the essence of His mother, born in time, completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards to divinity, less than the Father as regards to humanity. Although He is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by His divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to Himself. He is one, certainly not by blending of His essence, but by the unity of His person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. 
So what does that mean? What's the whole controversy about? You know what you know what Nestorius was saying? This is what comes up. That when Jesus was in heaven, he's God. When he was on earth, he was man. He lost all divinity. That's why you'll also have some other Gnostic teachings about Jesus that have come out that Jesus had wives and Jesus had all these things. These are Gnostic teachings that came along later taking upon some of these uh, understandings. When Jesus was, Jesus did not empty all his divinity stepping into flesh. He was both God, fully divine, and he was fully man, but he didn't empty of his, he's still one. He didn't empty of his divinity just because he stepped into this. But what happens with stepping into flesh, what did, that, what did, it, what did it explain? Stepping into divinity, he makes himself lower. Why? Did Jesus, was Jesus hopping around using, you know, was Jesus hopping around from one city that he was just, you know, I guess uh, beam me up Scotty type thing? He was just like, I need to go to Jerusalem today. So, there. He did, did he do that? He did do that. After his resurrection, after his death. No, no. There was a time when they entered into the ship and instantly they were on the other side. And he now. But it wasn't just Jesus, it was Jesus, it was Jesus and all his disciples and, and the ship. With him. I don't know. I don't know what that's. About. I don't know that. I, but I, I know that he went. He got into a boat and then went to the other side. I know that. Um, oh. I know that people ran ahead when they found out that where he was going. I don't know if that's your account. Are you talking about the when Peter, uh, when Jesus comes walking on the water? Okay. So what he finds here, what we find here is that Jesus is both divine, and he is man when he comes in the form of flesh. When he says this, he doesn't blend his essence. What does he do? Although he is God, although he's God and not and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God taking humanity to himself, he is one. And I, I love this aspect. He is he is begotten before time. We'll get to the first part of that Athanasian Creed. So he said he's from God, from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And he's human from the essence of his mother, born in time. What does that mean? There was a point in time when Jesus came in flesh, correct? But he, he has always been, is what that statement comes. And so I, I love when it, we, we look at it and we say, well, if the creed was our authority only, it would be an imperfect. It would be imperfect because of that. But we find in the book of Hebrews something even greater. He, if you have a chance to read the book of Hebrews... You could probably read it for the next month, at least read it through, all the way through every week, and you'll find a uh, uh, correlation of why Jesus is greater than, greater and greater and greater. As we've, we've talked about it before. But look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 15. It says, that For it was, not to, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. If you stop here, what that says is Jesus is lower than the angels. What well, When you talk about the son of man being put in subjection, he's lower. If you do that right there, if you stop, it creates a false teaching. There's a reason why we read this in context. <laughs> so what happens is there are people who take this out and say, listen, listen Jesus is subordinate. Look at, look at what the whole thing. Did, did, uh, did demons, did, demons uh, did Jesus submit to demons or did demons submit to him? We saw that, right? So it's not, we got to be careful in the context of this. It says, now put, in putting everything into subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. So even while Jesus is in the flesh, nothing is outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, even though Christ is now ascended, right? But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, 
go back to remember what we talked in John 1. He was with the God in the beginning, and by all things were made through him. And bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell, you, tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, atonement for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he also he is, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the point of that passage is to see that although he is he is God in the flesh, he is God. From the beginning, he humbles himself and taking on flesh, he submits himself in such a way that he might come and take on flesh for what? That he might save those who are, who are of flesh. What we found is at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, they, they, made, they, they promulgated their own definition to clear up any controversy which read this. That in Christ there are two natures, each retaining its own properties, and together united in one person and in one single subsistence. What they said is Christ has two natures, and in doing so, they retain their own properties, both divine and flesh, yet they're in one single subsistence. They dwell as one. Is Christ raised only in, was he raised only in the spirit? Now we see it as a physical ascension is what we know, right? All right. In doing so, they marked Nestorianism as heresy. Now I will tell you this, that uh, it, it reared its ugly head under other rulers, and those who, uh, Athanasius, uh, Athanasius, who came out against this, and that's where this, this kind of came up in this aspect, um, was exiled several times because it was not the church that would change and change it from heresy. It was the local ruler at the time. And so they would bring up that they would follow the school of thought. And, and so they would, what they'd do is they'd put him in exile. And what finally at the end of the thing, if, if you look at it, the church comes back and says they anathematize the teaching, which means this is a curse, a very curse against uh, of God upon this teaching. And so when we find it, it doesn't take much, but you know, like I said, one of the teachings was specifically saying that Jesus uh, Jesus was created, that's a, that's a, contra, that, that's a her heresy, that Jesus was created by God. And the second one, it says that Jesus is not divine when he was on earth. That means everything he did, he did with, from his flesh. He didn't do everything from his flesh. He didn't heal from his flesh. He healed according to what the Father gave him. What did it, and I always remember this. Time and time again, Jesus would be in the midst of a crowd of people who, who had diseases. He didn't heal them all. There was one time the, the blind man, he only healed the blind man. Secondly, if, he, if people were healed, you'll also see they were never healed the same way twice. Those little things to think about, and that what does that mean? That means God is God is the agent of all things, and it's by His will all things are done. And even coming in the flesh, He subjects Himself. Jesus subjects Himself into the flesh, being limited by many things, being limited completely um, by the physical side. We we see the limitation, and also the hardness, even in the garden. Uh, as he, prior to his prior to his crucifixion, prior to being arrested, the very nature of Christ and the and the overwhelming of what was to come. 
See, there's an aspect of divinity there because he knows what's to come. He knows what Scripture has fulfilled. In fact, he's told his he's told his disciples several times, "This is where we're going here, and I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to die." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He didn't say, it, and, and it happened several times. Yeah, and it happened, and so the burden was there. He knew what he was approaching, and still he approached. He knew what was about to happen in the garden as he waited and prayed and all the disciples were falling asleep. He knew the burden of what was about to come and he still took it upon The flesh side of it, the weakness of the flesh is you can see that when we talk about he sweated drops of blood. When you talk about that, that is a high amount of stress. There is a physicality of the humanness, not just his divinity there. But there's so much at play. For someone to say, He's not, he can't be both born of God. That's why Theotokos means mother of God. Um, the reason why has a lot more to do with not what we think. We think of how they make, they lift Mary up to the status of God and you pray to Mary as a mediator. That's not what we're talking about there. We're talking about that, saying that Theotokos is a word. She wasn't a God, she's not Theos. She's the mother of God, and what does it mean is that he was incarnate of the Holy Spirit by the Virgin Mary. It's a very intentional statement there, that she did bear him. She did give birth to him. She did. It wasn't a little capsule that descended from a star in heaven into a little manger, and she just raised him. She raised. She did more than that. She carried him the nine, the nine months. She bore him in birth. She nursed him. She raised him. And all those things. And she was there at his death. And she was she was there at his crucifixion. She was there throughout the whole thing. So there is an aspect that we need to take seriously about the mother of God. Because she did mother him. And what is, what was hit one of his last statements to John was John, mother, 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 here's your son, son, here's your mother. He he handed over. He Right. He was fulfilling his responsibility to her mm -hmm. to to John for John to take care of her as his mother as he would have his own mother right as he would have had to have taken care of her if he was just yeah. a normal person and so when you look at that ask there's a lot more to that aspect that's why I think we need most people don't I'll say this most I'll say this from the from the Baptist perspective and, and that, except if it was in a Christmas message on Luke two. That's about all you get. Right. Yeah. Luke chapter one and two. That's all you're gonna get. It's only mentioned of Mary, but there's so much substance to it. And throughout, so from the reform side, we need to study it more, and we need to emphasize a little bit more there then she was a virgin who gave birth. That's a big part, but there's more to it. So those aspects of because he was, because a human gave birth, you don't deny his divinity. Because we'll get to that. I don't want to get into all the aspects and aspects of the consummation of those things. So... But this look at it, this is where it, it's gonna it's gonna come up. Things come up all the time, and that's that's why having just a basis for some of these thoughts, we gotta have it because um, they come up. And, and if you were to talk to a Mormon today, they're some of the sweetest people, some of the greatest families you'll ever meet. But I'm gonna tell you, it's a work-based salvation based upon what they do. No different than Jehovah's Witnesses. It's a work-based salvation, but. They're not working. Mormons are not working. They're working for their own planet. Be their own God. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in hell. They're based upon, they're, they're looking at whether they'll be rewarded and be able to be in heaven and paradise or if they're going to have to be labor for the rest of their life and live on earth. They don't have a view of hell. So it's work-based. Based on what you do, depends if you get to be in the presence of God or you get to be on the new earth and continue to live that's their life so i mean it's it's very sad but these little things right here their view of christ the view of the work of christ has everything to do with it and um 
let's we'll get into some more of this. This is just doc, this is I'm trying to teach some some base doctrine so we can kind of look at some other aspects that are approaching. So let's pray and then we'll close. And Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to open your word to talk about these things. There's so much more here that needs to be talked about. And Lord, sometimes it's just easier for me to. I love questions and I love answering. And Lord, but there's just we have to look at these things because these things will rear their ugly heads. They're still here today in different forms and uh, different religions and uh, different forms, even Christianity, if you want to call it that. But Lord God, there's been much struggle in, in these areas. And Lord, I pray that we can um, that we can teach with fervency the truth of your word. And Lord God, that um, my, my Reformed Baptist brethren would tell me that that scripture, uh, scripture alone, and Lord, I as well, uh, where I believe that yes, it is scripture alone is our authority for all things. Lord, you also have given us, Lord God, there, you, that you've also given us historical documents as well. Not that they are they're, uh, they're, uh, without error, but Lord God, it's these documents, it's these things that Lord, you use to help us look back on history, look back on what has occurred and the, the controversies that have happened and the stance that the church has come. And their stance is based upon your word and not from men. Lord God, I pray that we... It will help us to not repeat history, but Lord God, that we'd stand firm and move forward, Lord, for your kingdom's sake. Lord, I pray that you just uh, just help us daily to apply these things and continue to press the rights, the crown rights of King Jesus into every aspect of life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.